the, the truth is, it's that desire to make it a better world and even the playing field that makes me get up every day, you know, after 50 years as a neurosurgeon and want to do more surgery and help more people and, and be able to contribute uh, to all the issues we face in the world today. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, Jake P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. So today, again, I'm super honored to be joined by uh, someone that I would call one of the great mentors in neurosurgery, uh, Dr. Barth Green. Dr. Barth Green essentially built not only uh, the current program here in Miami, uh, the neurosurgery program, but he also built many other organizations, including founding the Miami Project to Cure Paralysis. Barth, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Pleasure. So uh, the topic we kind of wanted to get into is something, and I know we could talk about anything with you, but um, this, this issue of neurosurgery and philanthropy and its relationship, and uh, you've been so successful in getting people to support causes that matter, right? And maybe you could tell us a little about how you got started in all this. Like what, what really, what drove you to be such a icon in that arena? Well, I guess I was really uh, inspired in the 60s when I was a medical student and I had a job in a laboratory in Indiana uh, studying paralysis in rats. And every morning I would stumble into work after being on call or partying or studying and I was just <laughs> like overwhelmed with uh, how I suffered. And sitting next to me would be a young veteran in a wheelchair who was immaculately dressed and had an amazing smile on their face. And they just were ready to take the day on and do whatever it took to help the world. And it sort of put me in my place and made me realize that it's important to give, not just to receive. And what a blessing being a physician and potentially a neurosurgeon was and what do we owe in return? What's our obligation? What's our commitment to the world? And, and this was a great role model to see these young veterans who were paralyzed serving their country and were there earlier than I was, left later, and never complained and weren't getting paid a penny for what they were doing. So it was kind of like the need of it, right? The need that inspired you? It was, it was the need to cure paralysis but it was also the fact that they were giving of their time and they were giving of their lives so that others could have a better life. Yeah. And so that was a, a role model I never forgot. And that's when I committed to doing something about paralysis. And I've sort of tried to carry that torch since then, even though it's been a little bit of a twisted road from the standpoint of uh, having a lot of people roll their eyes at me and swing 360s around my head, you know, as far as doubting my sincerity, was I misleading people 
when I talked about walking again. And I want to get back to that later, but but before we started this podcast recording, you mentioned something that kind of struck both JP and me. Yeah. And what what did, what did you say about? Uh, so you you know we were just talking about today's topic is uh, you know philanthropy and neurosurgery, and you said, well well let me stop you right there because there's a big misconception people have. There's philanthropy, and then there's service. Can you kind of expand on that for us? Yes. Uh, philanthropy is when you reach in your pocket or you um, ask others to do so and, and they uh, fund uh, certain projects, uh, whether it be you know, research or whether it be education or all the different opportunities of service that exist. And what I look as, uh, onto my career in neurosurgery I wouldn't say I was a philanthropist by any means, um, but rather um, I have committed to service to others. And mm -hmm. that's a big difference. And a lot of people have given because of my service uh, to them as patients and to various causes. And that stimulated them to, to donate hundreds of millions of dollars over the years, not just to the Miami Project, but to other organizations that I've had the pleasure of, of sometimes creating and often just serving. So it's, uh, it's a big difference there. Now, a lot of our listeners are relatively young. They're, they're interested in neurosurgery or they're getting started. And, um, you know, I know the history of the Miami Project, but I always worry that people, you know, don't really know the history of an organization. Maybe you could go back to, to maybe like the 1980s and tell us about how it started and this whole concept of the Manhattan Project and, all, and, and how, how you envisioned the Miami Project. Is it just another place where they're doing spinal cord research or is it something different? Well, the Miami Project was conceived at a time when I was ready to give up and just practice neurosurgery because I had submitted uh, federal grants, R01s to NIH, and I kept getting these letters that saying you're highly rated this grant should be funded, but this year, because of cuts in federal funding, we're not gonna fund any new grants. And so I had a research laboratory, and I had some amazing projects going on mm -hmm. in, in this laboratory, and I had some clinical projects going on, and the same things people are studying today, like hypothermia and medications and different approaches to minimizing paralysis and also even reversing it. And uh, I, was, I reached a point of frustration when one day I got a call about a young football player mm -hmm. who was paralyzed on the field in Tennessee. His name was Mark Bonacani. And his father uh, was well known in the South Florida community. He said, look, Dr. Green, I've been told this is the best place in the world to go because of you and your team and, and the facilities at Jackson and I'm gonna bring my son here. I'm, I'm putting his life in your hands. And uh, from that day on, my life changed, and it was the birth of the Miami Project. Because when Nick arrived, and his son was lying there, total C1 quadriplegic, functionally, not breathing, not moving, not feeling, and Nick promised him that he'd get up someday out of that bed and breathe and move and do things with his life um, we had to do something about it. And Nick was a, a kick-butt guy. Mm -hmm. He didn't bluff. And when he said that, a week later, we were on the field at the Dolphins game, 
and we were, you know, raising hundreds of thousands and later millions of dollars all over the world to cure paralysis. And that's why I stuck to it because Nick transformed my life with his commitment to his son, which never wavered until this last year when he passed away. I especially like the analogy, and I remember, I think it was a talk you'd given about how the parallel to the Manhattan Project and, and the, the, the structure, right? The organization is designed differently than your typical uh, scenario, right? Can you, can you comment on that, about how it's set up to be sort of like non-competitive and more collaborative? Well, we decided to create a model that was quite ideal from the standpoint that we told the scientists we recruited, and we looked all over the world and, and hired the first scientist who ever did a brain transplant with fetal cells. It happened to be in, in Sweden at the Karolinski. And we went over there and just plucked him out of that institution, mm -hmm. brought him to Miami and said, look, if you come here, whatever money it takes, whoever you want to hire, whatever you want to do, we're going to take care of you, but we don't want you to go home. We don't want you to sleep. We want you to eat with your work. <laughs> And, and do everything it takes to cure paralysis as quickly as you can. And he turned around to his colleagues all over the world and began recruiting world-class scientists and clinicians who had, were like-minded and could focus on their science. We said, you don't have to write grants, you don't have to fundraise, we're gonna do that for you. But you have to commit seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And the model of the Manhattan Project or the Moonshot Project were examples historically where impossible goals were achieved with massive investment of human, technical, and financial resources. We wanted to duplicate that commitment and duplicate the historic, historic change. Yeah, that's true. So, so much of the energy of a principal investigator is just trying to get the funding for the next year, right? I mean, that's, it's, it's such a burden maybe a necessary one in some places, right? But it really saps a lot of their creativity. Well, the, the system is constipated. I always describe it and people cringe when I say that. But it's true because the great science that comes out of the laboratory, by the time it goes through peer review and rewrite and re-review, it's already old news. Hmm. So the question is how do you take that wisp of new knowledge, new energy, exciting technology, and grab it quickly and transform it into clinical trials and, and effective treatments for humans. How do you avoid all these steps? And that was the model that was created that became the Miami Project to Cure Paralysis. I always worry, and I, worry's probably the wrong word, but I always have in the back of my mind that like, probably in mainland China, they're gonna find the real answers because, not because they're smarter or anything like that, but because they have no regulation. I mean, basically you can, as you know, right? I mean, you sent people from the Miami Project to China to see what they're doing, and, and they can do what, kind of like whatever they want, right? I mean, so they just kind of like throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks in humans, not rats, right? But like, it's crazy there. Well, it's interesting. Americans universally believe if something's farther away, it's smarter, it's better, uh -huh. it's, it's more mysterious. It's just like a consultant. Right. The farther away you live, the smarter you are. And so I think it's very important that people realize that there are brilliant scientists from China. And they actually, the leader of China's son was paralyzed in the Cultural Revolution. Deng, you're talking about Deng Xiaoping's right. son. Okay. And he came here to Miami and he supported the Miami Project. 
and together we designed the largest rehab center in the world in Beijing. Oh, wow. Which I had the honor of, of being the guest speaker at the initiation. So we've had a close relationship to China and to Russia. But what we found in reality is you're right, they're unregulated and a lot of the research that was being done were, were being done on human subjects from Miami and New York, mm, California. American patients. Right, okay. who flocked over there with this belief that something must be good if it's going on over there secretly. Yeah. I, I'm also fascinated when I walk through this building, the Lois Pope Life Center, about how many spin-off aspects. Of course, everybody's thinking about, okay, well, you got to get paralyzed people walking. But really down on the first floor, the thing that inspires me the most is the number of children that have been born. And mm. It never even occurred to me that, okay, so you're paralyzed, you're 23 years old, and you might want to get married and have kids. And before it was impossible, of course, right? And then you have a huge effort to do this right here here in this building right well that's an example of what started out to be a research project and now is clinical practice all over the world like you said it was impossible for paralyzed men to have their own children now it's being done all over the world because of the basic science research done on motility and implantation and all of the ancillaries here at the Miami project we don't do that research anymore because it's clinical practice and that's our greatest pride when your science becomes reality. Mm -hmm. and, and that's an accomplishment. And I think my father always told me that the greatest gift a physician could do would be to contribute to medicine, something that changed the treatment of people. And I sure as heck didn't, but the Miami Project sure as heck did. Well, you, you've made it possible, I think. You made it possible. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's an incredible aspect that, I mean, I as well would never consider that. And, you know, Talking about paralysis as a disease, that's the ultimate quality of life improvement that, that you could do for a patient, right? It's not saving the life, it is giving someone function back. And so even as you continue to work toward curing the ultimate disease paralysis, looking at these different aspects throughout the patient's life, having children, getting around and getting to work, being functional on the job, um, even as you continue to strive towards curing the disease itself, uh, it, it's crucial to look at those different facets of their life as well. In the Miami Project, you're totally correct, it's holistic. And we're dealing with issues we never thought existed because when Mark Bonacani was an 18-year-old kid and he was paralyzed, we didn't think that 36 years later he'd be wheeling around town you know, and leading discussions mm. on how to cure paralysis, how to raise money, how to improve the lives of people in wheelchairs. <laughs> how to put them out of business, the wheelchair companies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, as you know, one of my other great mentors, Mike Puzo, used to tell me, you know, when you start to rise, you got to watch out for the anti-aircraft fire. So I want to come back to the point you touched on, which is as you were getting very successful raising hundreds of millions of dollars for the Miami Project, some uh, haters, I'm going to call them haters for now, right, started to, to say, well, you know, what's really going on there, right? And, and how, how was, I mean, how did that make you feel? Well, I'm a tough kid from the south side of Chicago, and I grew up, you know, being ready for that type of confrontation. And, and there's no well, you train doubt. Well, you train under Paul Busey, right? right so you're ready right. for that kind of confrontation. And, and, you know, people would often, you know, look at me and say, you're misleading, you're being dishonest. And I would just say, no, we're just being honest in our goal. We're not there yet, but we're putting good science 
where our thoughts are. We're not just talking the talk, we're doing the research. And ultimately, that's what changed the lives of thousands of people today and millions, hopefully, in the future. Mm -hmm. Because there's no doubt that a lot of our patients, as you know, are walking because of hypothermia, because of new surgical techniques, before, because of more aggressive early treatment, because of better preventative programs, for a lot of different protocols for clinical translation are now a reality. And have we cured paralysis in everybody? No. But we've really improved the quality of life in most people who suffer these catastrophic injuries. And the Mommy Project has a new role today. It's not just curing paralysis. The new role is to repair the nervous system mm -hmm. because there are tens of millions of people who are paralyzed from a lot of different causes other than spinal injury. Mm -hmm. And they all have one thing in common. They have a damaged nervous system. And the different strategies of the Miami Project scientists are complementary for whatever the cause of the injury or the ischemia or the trauma, whatever the cause, you've got to repair that nervous system, whether it's a peripheral nerve, the brain, or the spinal cord. So that gives us a new breath of fresh air to move up and on and be able to do more to get to that moon. I like that because A, you have this unstoppable optimism, but also I always think about like Viagra was initially tested as a blood pressure medication, mm -hmm. right? And so, so who knows what you are gonna find in any research laboratory, right? And if you're too narrow, you know, because you're labeled as such, then you may miss a huge opportunity, right? It could be that um, the answer for some other neurological disease right, is, is, is found here. I think the most exciting newbie on the block is the marriage of neuroscience with engineering. And that's been a transformative change in the last decade. And, and bringing the engineers uh, with their brilliance and their creativity into the same laboratory and clinical research center that you've got the neuroscientists and putting together their knowledge, because the nervous system is an electrical system. And to be able to put that together, it's just amazing. Yeah, I mean, you've got people here like Ian Cahigas, one of your residents, who's an MIT-trained electrical engineer, and he's working in the labs here at the Miami Project every day, yeah. uh, helping get people back walking. Right, Ian's amazing. And when he's off duty, and he's not taking care of the hospital trauma center, or working in the laboratory, guess where he is? He's out speaking to groups of veterans and yep. paralyzed kids and letting them know that people care about their future and there's a commitment to change not only their quality of life but their functional status. And that's very inspiring to me looking back over all these decades of work. So I want to sh shift gears a little bit because we could talk about, as I said, anything. You used to be a bartender. We could talk about so many things and you've had such an interesting and colorful life and you've met so many so many people and, and, and you know, truly you're, you transcend neurosurgery. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't know what JP's going to be, but I'm confined within neurosurgery, but you transcend it. And, and I think that may be one of the reasons why people don't always understand you within organized neurosurgery, right? And I, I think that's probably relatively true. But another thing that you've really uh, put a stake in the ground on is Haiti. Mm. And, uh, I, you know, I, many people have heard me talk about how you convinced me to, to even travel there, which I said I was never going to do. Um, tell us about what's going on in Haiti right now, because I know you're there a lot. Yeah, Haiti is an extraordinary uh, piece of real estate that used to be the, the most uh, successful, wealthiest agricultural 
land in the world 200 years ago, and it's been kind of on a course that's not very positive since then. And the people are still wonderful and brilliant and creative, and they're singers, they're dancers, they're musicians, they're artists, um, they're hard workers. But the problem is the government has been very uh, uh, unpredictable, to use mm. a kind word. And the problem is it's, it's hard for people to thrive without basics like education, clean water, and opportunity. That's the big word for, they, for people in developing nations. All they want is opportunity, mm. a job, a computer so they can access knowledge and take it to the next level. And you'll be amazed that 99% of them don't get that opportunity. So we created Project MediShare and, and organized neurosurgery has been very supportive uh, in allowing us to train people in Haiti and, to, and volunteers coming from especially the United States but also Canada and around the world to improve the quality of life. There are two neurosurgeons for 11 million people in Haiti. Wow. There's not an MRI scanner. There's not a radiation therapy machine. There's not one angiogram machine for 11 million people. It's wow. one hour from Miami. And you started the first neurosurgery residency there, right, so to right. speak. Yeah, you, I mean, I should, you helped Ragan, start it. Right. Yeah, you guys helped help found that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you want to talk about the dichotomy between philanthropy and service. I mean, obviously, the resources are necessary to get an infrastructure built there, but you could put all the money in the world, <clears throat> all the money in the world onto that island, and if you don't have people with the training, people who can provide that service to bring neurosurgical care to those patients, then what good will the money do? Right, well, there's, it's, it's more than that. I think as a neurosurgeon, you encounter patients who are very grateful. Mm. You do your best for them, and, and most of the time there's a great result, and your patients often become your friends because they're in your community very often. Mm. And a lot of them are capable of giving and donating. Yesterday, when I was making rounds, one of my patients was leaving rehab. He said, you know what, Dr. Green? I feel so great. I want to buy lunch for the staff in the rehab center and in the hospital. And by the way, I'm going to write such and such a check for the Miami Project. People know what I care about. And if they don't know, they ask. They know I care about curing paralysis. They know I care about building opportunity in Haiti. And so what happens is people are usually very generous when they've come through a difficult time. And they realize if a physician really cares about them, that they're gonna do more than just make sure their insurance covers their bill. They're gonna give something back. And mm -hmm. so that's an example that occurs every day. And so each of us as neurosurgeons have an opportunity to tell our patients about the things we believe in, the areas we think could use help, and, and encourage them to be philanthropists. Mm. So, you know, that's so inspiring, and I will never forget being a fellow here uh, 20 years ago and going on rounds with you at 2 or 3 in the morning after surgery and people opening their checkbooks. And it really opened my eyes because nobody at USC, as great as that place is, ever did anything like that. And it really, and this is, this is what I want to close the podcast with, if, if it's okay with you, JP. Yeah. There's young people listening now. Most of them are very optimistic. Many of them will lose that optimism 
maybe I have, I think, as they get older, right? How do you, I mean, you're in your 70s now, right? How do you maintain that energy and the optimism to do these things that are, they're completely selfless. I mean, they're, they're, they're concepts that just get eroded by the vagaries of the day, right? How do you do that? What, what keeps you doing that? It's really not what keeps me uh, doing it. The, the truth is, it's that desire to make it a better world and even the playing field that makes me get up every day, you know, after 50 years as a neurosurgeon and want to do more surgery and help more people and, and be able to contribute uh, to all the issues we face in the world today. Uh, I think neurosurgery is such an amazing field. We're really blessed to be able to do what we do. And in return, every day of our life, we should think about how we can leverage our opportunities to help others. And, and by doing that, I think you're gonna live a lot longer, be a lot happier and more productive. What do you think of that, JP? Beautiful sentiment. Um, again, for someone starting my own career, uh, that model, if I can achieve 15% of what you've listed there, I'll be successful. Thank you. I'm not done. Well, we know you have a lot of things to do today, so we're going to let you go. But we want to thank you for your time, Dr. Green, and thank you uh, for inspiring our listeners. If anybody wants to reach out, please go to our uh, email at neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com. Maybe send Dr. Green a message, okay? All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it.